Okay, this is going to be a very special event, and uh, the time will go by quickly, I promise. Uh, this is something we did uh, with the Ryan White Care Meeting in San Francisco back in uh, October. The notion is to speak to people who were involved in the early days of the HIV uh, epidemic before HIV even was discovered. And because we're in Atlanta, we're celebrating the contributions and success of the leaders who were around at that time who are here on the panel with us. Um, I will go briefly around the group here and then we'll just start with general questions and each person will have a chance to talk. I'll ask that they try to keep their initial comments to two, maybe three minutes max and we'll circle back to things. Um, and we'll just keep calling on them and, and Dr. Lennox and I will just kind of keep things flowing. We'll see where it goes naturally. So uh, coming from uh, the front row, we have uh, Dr. Lennox and then Dr. Jim Curran, who was uh, the head of the CDC around that time and uh, was involved uh, heavily in uh, the policy uh, related to that uh, outbreak. Uh, Melanie Thompson, who we've already introduced and was a practicing physician or at that time still is. Dr. Harold Jaffe, who was doing a lot of the uh, groundwork um, going to patients trying to sort out why uh, people were coming down with this illness even before as it was being reported. Uh, Dr. David Rimlin, who you know from the El Atlanta area, was working at the VA throughout that time and in the early days. And then Dr. John Kaplan, who also was at CDC, with a focus especially on the international components of, of HIV. So. Uh, Dr. Kern, I will start with you because um, you were in the, you were, he was hoarse and we're not going to save his voice. Um, but um, when was it that you first became aware that something was happening, sort of the Buffalo Springfield, something happening here, what it is ain't exactly clear? Hi, so he's uh, laughing at me because I'm hoarse and old. Um, <laughs> so the, uh, so Harold and I were uh, sitting around CDC in the STD division when the first uh, five cases of pneumocystis crinia and pneumonia were reported in draft in the MMWR and it kind of came across our desk. They had been uh, stimulated because their, the late uh, Sandra Ford was a clerk and dispensed pentamidine isothionate, a very rarely used drug for a very rarely used uh, a very rare disease uh, in those days. And she noticed that there were some people who had no underlying cancers or anything, told her supervisor, who was a veterinarian, about this, stimulated the EIS officer to work with Dr. Michael Gottlieb and some colleagues in LA. And five cases of pneumocystis were reported in previously healthy gay men on June 5th, 1981. Ronald Reagan was president. He promised to rid us of domestic programs and had a freeze on uh, domestic spending, uh, spending all the money vanquishing the Soviet Union. Um, and he put a, gave us a travel freeze and a hiring freeze. I think at the time, uh, Harold, we had one or two behavioral scientists on, on the staff at CDC, and it, sent, and it seemed like no biostatisticians, but there were a few. So we started with a task force of volunteers uh, mostly physicians, former EIS officers, who jumped on any new epidemic. And we began with a case definition, <clears throat> which was very specific 
uh, for very rare uh, opportunistic infections which were fatal or life-threatening and uh, or Kaposi sarcoma in men under age 60, another very, very rare cancer in younger men, and no evidence of immune suppression or immune suppressive drugs or underlying illness. And then we began active and passive surveillance to find out what was happening uh, with the disease and condition. I want to just say two other, one other thing, and that is that uh, nobody cared about this actually in the first year to speak of. Uh, very, very few people. Some people in San Francisco and LA, and maybe one case in Atlanta, um, and a few, and a few, and quite a few in New York City. Um, and so we were always looking for attention. Uh, we had a little bit of money to go to New York and California. But the one thing I remember very much was going to my first ICAC meeting at the, in uh, Chicago in the fall of 1982 at a meeting that was about nine o'clock at night. It was a meeting on um, new epidemics with uh, Alan Steele and Lyme disease, and toxic shock syndrome. And uh, it was a huge ballroom of people. It was empty when I got there. People were not interested after a long day of meetings of listening about Lyme disease. But when they heard that Kaposi sarcoma and opportunistic infections were on the agenda, it started to fill up. And by the time I gave my uh, crummy little 10 minute talk on the first 20 minute talk in the first 100 cases, there must have been 2,500 people in the room. So it was the infectious disease community that recognized very initially the importance of it. And because of a lot of infectious disease doctors and other people caring for patients with AIDS, the attention kept on getting focused on it, both domestically and globally. Yeah, thanks. Um, Dr. Jaffe, you, it didn't just sort of appear in the MMWR on June 5th. There had to be some work done in advance. Um, you were involved in some of that from the first part of 1981. Uh, when did you first hear about all this? Wayne Chandera, who was the EIS officer in California. Can, can you all hear? No. We, you can use yes. my mic. You can use my mic. Just hold on. There it goes. That's right. Just might want to lean in. Yeah. We received a report from Wayne Chandera, who was our EIS officer in Los Angeles. He had been working with Michael Gottlieb, who was a junior, junior immunologist at UCLA Hospital, and reported the first five cases. I think we got the report probably in what March, Jim, something like that. May. And I just thought this is very strange. I don't understand this. Why would this be? We put it out there, and suddenly people started reporting cases, saying, "I saw one of those. I saw one of those." But we have to give a lot of credit to Shandera and Godley for having the insight to report the cases in the way they did. So, what did you what did you think? How what did you feel about this? Obviously, it's unusual. What were your initial thoughts as you went to investigate this or think about it some more, putting the working with Michael Gottlieb and others to get that first uh, MMWR out? It was like a lot of outbreaks that get reported to CDC. Just look at it and say, this shouldn't be, this is a mystery. There must be something going on in gay men. But what was it? Yeah. Was it an exposure to something in their environment? Was it a sexually transmitted diseases? We worked in the VD division, so we were suspicious of that. But it really just started out as a medical mystery that nobody else was very interested in. Right. So I'll go through the first round real quickly and then turn it over to Jeff to moderate. But Melanie, so you were here, you finished training 
and about what year? So, so I was in medical school when all this happened. I finished medical school in 84 and then went into residency. But so um, I remember being on my first clinical rotation, which began in, in the fall of 1982. And there was this young black man who was desperately ill, weight loss, fevers, nobody knew what was going on with him. Um, and um, turned out he had mycobacterium avium uh, from biopsies and so on. Um, and of course, we didn't really have, we didn't have a test. We didn't really know what was going on, but um, he, uh, he got progressively sick. It became apparent to me that he was a young gay man and he was extremely closeted and nobody knew. And, you know, sometimes I think, gee, it's still the same. <laughs> still still <clears throat> affecting some of the same populations in the same way, but, but it made a bit of, big impression on me. And then I began to see more and more patients. And, and one day this guy showed up at, to talk to my medical school <laughs> and, and in my medical class. And he talked about, uh, you know, it might've been those hundred cases. It was the, you know, accumulating cases of this very mysterious syndrome where the hallmark was multiple opportunistic infections and other things. And, um, you know, I, I just remember being captivated by that because really of the desperation and the suffering um, that you saw people go through and the fact that we really didn't have anything to offer or very little to offer, pentamidine and so on. Um, and, you know, so, so right off the bat, it, it felt like something that was a huge challenge and uh, and and I think um, it it really had had a social justice edge to it also from the very beginning right Dr. Rimland, you were here around that time, and also you worked with Sam Thompson, who we would have here, except that you know tragically he passed away at a young age. But maybe you could talk about your experience and briefly tell us about what Dr. Thompson. Sure. The uh, I was actually working at the VA since '77, so this is pre-AIDS, and uh, actually my chief of medicine thought that infectious disease person ought to have a clinic. So I had a clinic that I saw one or two patients once a week with infectious endocarditis or something else going on. So our first uh, patient at the VA was actually in January of 82. Uh, and after that, obviously the clinic uh, blossomed. I actually had, had my first exposure to an HIV patient. I was actually asked to discuss a CPC from an Emory patient around October of 81. And obviously, I had read the MNWR, and it was a gay man with progressive pulmonary infiltrates. I said, oh, I know what this is. Uh, and I was humbled by that because he turned out to have pulmonary KS as the etiology of his pulmonary infiltrates. So uh, it taught me a lot about uh, what the possibilities were, what was going on. But uh, it was uh, quite striking in terms of our first patient then, in, uh, as I said, in January of 82. And we rapidly grew as a clinic, obviously, from that time on. Right. Um, and, and Sam Thompson? Sam had uh, started the, the HIV clinic, actually, at Grady, uh, which obviously also became a huge clinic. And he was incredibly instrumental in getting things organized and started at that time. Uh, a lot of effort was put in in terms of what was needed with personnel, space, and everything else. And uh, 
Jeff obviously could uh, attest to what happened after that in terms of the space, but uh, it was a, a huge amount of work. And just one interesting aspect of it, I think Grady had a much harder time because of the issue of uh, finding how to pay for the drugs for many of the patients at that time. The VA was very interesting. For the very first time we saw our patients uh, from January on, actually, anything subsequently that happened with drugs, with tests that were needed, uh, the VA was very open about providing them, and it was never an issue for us in terms of where to find the money to take care of the patients, and that was really an incredible uh, plus in terms of taking care of our veterans. Yeah. And Dr. Kaplan, we'll let get you the final on this initial salvo. Um, your initial experiences with HIV and then how you engaged internationally. Sure, well, <clears throat> well the international component came later. Um, but first of all, it's, uh, it's humbling for me to be up here. I realized that during my career, I was supervised directly or indirectly by at least three people up here. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> it's always great to see your mentors. Um, when I, in 1981, I was a first year EIS officer at CDC, uh, finishing the first year of what became a 30 plus year career. I was in the division of viral diseases, working on uh, some other entities. Um, I was not initially involved in the task force uh, that Jim and, and Harold described, but it didn't take long to get involved. Um, 1982 was the first time and a colleague, a very important colleague, um, Dr. Tom Spira, who uh, unfortunately is no longer with us. Uh, he was a giant in the field, and I think if he were still around, he would be up here in the panel with us. Uh, he was a, a clinician and an immunologist, very involved in the investigations. He, he invited me to join him in a research project involving young gay men in the Atlanta uh, area who were referred from a private practice, uh, a person who Melanie knows very well, with lymph node enlargement all over their body. So this is 1982. So this is a, a mystery uh, at that time. I mean, we knew there had to be a link with what was going on um, clinically. A lot of these men were developing opportunistic infections. Um, immunologically, epidemiologically, they all fit, but it was a mystery. So it was very exciting for me and sobering because some of these men who weren't a whole lot younger than I was at the time were getting uh, very sick. So that was my first foray into the area. And, and um, you know, I'll never forget Tom Spira and all those young men who really gave of themselves two years later or a year later when we had the test for HIV, 75 of our 78 tested positive. Wow. And obviously they came around in the wrong time of history, almost all are not with us, but they came willingly to us and gave of their time and their blood samples without getting anything back from us because we weren't delivering their medical care other than the knowledge that they were contributing to something. It's a remarkable group of young men. Yeah, and Jeff? For the, you know, Jim and Harold and Jonathan, you know, in retrospect, it's easy to see that this is a new disease. But I remember at the time I was a medical student and there were camps that thought it was due to nitrate exposures or to existing viruses such as CMV. What was the single strongest lead that you had that made you think from early on that it was something new and different? Like others thought it was not new and different. You know, it was a, something else going on. Go ahead. <clears throat> 
Harold and I were coming from uh, the STD research branch. So we were fortunate to um, be working on hepatitis B vaccine epidemiology and hepatitis B vaccine trials and had many friends in the gay community working on these trials in five different cities. So we were very, very uh, aware of hepatitis B epidemiology. And this looks so much like it even from the very beginning because of who was affected. And the case definition was so specific. I mean, doctors would see a patient and they would remember that patient as something like they've never seen before in their whole careers. So it, it isn't like people thought, oh, I wonder what this is, it's some kind of sore throat or something. Uh, Harry Havercos, one of our doctors, was at, at University of Pittsburgh and they had one patient and he with pneumocystis and he said, this is such an unusual thing, I have to go to CDC to work so I can work on this. So it was such a remarkable disease, the definition was so specific. We found there were very few cases before 1981 and they kept on growing like gangbusters and they were essentially 100% fatal with no known cause. So it had to be something that could be sexually transmitted. Injecting drug users started getting it. And then eventually in early 1993, three persons with hemophilia got it, which is the hemophilia at the time with untreated concentrates was a canary in the coal mine for a new virus. So it just all fit together. But so many people were in denial. Uh, the pediatric immunologists were very important ones like Bob Good were saying this is not new. These cases don't count. They really don't count. Um, people didn't want there to be heterosexual transmission. Uh, so denial played a big part at a lot of levels because people didn't want this to be something that was easily transmissible. Within the gay community, it was a New York and California disease. It wouldn't happen to us. But this was obviously just the tip of a much, much larger iceberg that we kept on screaming about, and, uh, but still always underestimating. And Melanie, I'm sure since you were here in Atlanta that you must have gone through what something similar I went to as a resident is that things that didn't fit the case definition, nobody would believe you when you thought like this is related, like you know, HIV nephropathy or congestive heart failure. Did you guys see that right away here in Atlanta that there were lots of other manifestations of HIV that weren't, because it, yeah. I know I was struggling as a resident to convince attendings that this was related. Was it easier here or? No, no, <laughs> I don't think so. I, I think one of the things that really set these patients apart was how very sick they were in a multi-system way. You know, not like a usual patient with pneumonia who, you know, these were people who definitely had unusual manifestations from a multi-system point of view. So whether it was congestive heart failure, or whether it was nephropathy, or whether it was neuropathy, or whether, you know, uh, it, it dementia. was dementia. Um, you know, the, these were things that made it a syndrome that, uh, you know, to me it seemed like, okay, this is all the same thing, but, but I think it, it wasn't initially apparent to other people. And, and for David, it seemed from the outside that this, the VA pretty rapidly embraced treating HIV and took on the responsibility for care and became one of the largest care providers in the world. Was there a lot of behind the, scene, behind the scenes maneuvering that had to be done? You know, it's, it's actually weird. I thought about it a lot at the time and subsequently have heard about it. Uh, 
I don't know what the background was. You know, obviously, HIV disease and AIDS is not a service-connected connection. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet the VA, as I said, immediately caught on to this, and there was absolutely no problem in terms of caring for patients. So I'm not sure if there was a family member of somebody at the VA uh, in Washington or whatever. It was never clear to me why that happened, but it was an immediate <laughs> reaction in terms of caring for patients with HIV. And it was never an issue. And as I said, we were able to get every drug as soon as it became available, any tests that we had to do, CD4 counts, viral loads. There was never an issue in terms of having the provision uh, for both inpatients and outpatients. Uh, but in retrospect, I don't know why it happened. There must be something behind him and I've never been able to sort it out. Because it was very unusual for the VA to get involved in non-service issues. At Absolutely. That so it was quite striking, yeah. Harold or anybody else, did you have any behind the scenes insights <laughs> that weren't available to David? Because it was very striking. Just one other sort of anecdote. Uh, I trained in medicine at UCLA Hospital. Went to UCLA in the summer of 1981 to visit with Michael Gottlieb to see some of his patients. Remember interviewing a guy in the ICU who thought he was in a bowling alley. Um, talking to Ken Chine, who was the chief of medicine, who was an absolutely brilliant man. He said, you know, I saw these patients on chief's rounds. and I made a great differential diagnosis on every one of them, and I was wrong on all of them. It was AIDS. I never put it together. Did you, just real quickly, so you're there in the trenches, literally, and you're trying to put, make sense of this. Just briefly, how did you all go about organizing the surveillance? Because you had to create the case definition. Jim talked about that. Um, when you're implementing this, and John, I think you were involved in this too, once the lymphadenopathy story started to hit, did you have like just a sheet of paper, you just started writing things down and saying this, 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 and this? Because it's a syndrome, but you had to come up with some kind of definition. We had a definition by the summer of 81, which we sent out to teaching hospitals, oncologists, pathologists, ID specialists. We had EIS officers working in, what, 18 cities? Jim. Doing surveillance for So the, the really important thing was the case definition occurred before the, a year and a half before the virus was discovered. Right. And so we had to figure out, is this a new disease? Is it who's getting it, who isn't? Uh, so we simultaneously sent out icebergs. We had about 25, 30,000 iceberg slides we'd send out along with the case definition, saying that obviously there's lots of people in various groups that have lots of symptoms. Uh, one was idiopathic thrombocytic pink purpura. There were already starting to be some non-Hodgkin's lymphomas, but we weren't studying illnesses in gay men. We were studying a new syndrome which was killing people. And we had to find out who got it and who didn't. So it was not gay men's health. It was something like, is this new? Is it increasing? And what we had was a very specific definition that we knew was extremely insensitive. I used to, uh, I went to New York 40 times the first year and I used to have dinner every time I went with a, a physician named Dan William, who was a public health physician who had a large gay practice. And he would just tell me over dinner, all the different people coming into his office. And his office was swamped with people who were gay men who had uh, lymphadenopathy syndrome, they had a variety of different things. So we knew there was more, but we hoped was that uh, the illness was a form for us. We hope it was like hepatitis B. You know, it kills a few, other people develop immunity and then get better and the iceberg goes away. And then we develop a vaccine for the iceberg and 
everything's fine. You know, the, the, the worst thing happened, with, our worst possible thing happened, and that is everybody had an inevitably fatal illness. Yeah. John, your experience uh, in terms so of- I, uh, Thanks. I, I was not involved in the development of the case definition, but um, back to uh, Jeff, to a point you raised about pulling this together about what was causing this. Um, so I'm going to bring up briefly the issue of uh, blood transfusion, which was a big issue, I think, around 1985. There was a suggestion, and of course, you know, remember the story of Arthur Ashe, mm -hmm. um, that people were getting infected in this way. Now, I happened to be, uh, at, at that time, um, working with some very smart people, and we had access to data from um, blood donors in New York City who had contributed uh, blood to a patient who uh, developed HIV and AIDS. And we were able to do some probability calculations. We had, if I remember correctly, something like 10 or 12 uh, donors. And uh, uh, well, each one of the, I think, no, the, the recipient had received many, many uh, donations for a very complicated illness. And it turned out, um, that, uh, that every single um, HIV, HIV positive person among the donor pool had contributed one and only one unit to this person. I'm forgetting the exact details, but to me that, that, uh, that sort of firmed up the idea that I think we're really seeing something here. This is a probability calculation, but I, I think, and I think it firmed up Jim's idea also to some respect that uh, donations were causing AIDS. Jim, there's a famous picture of you um, th that I use in, if I give a talk on the history of HIV, where you're at a blood bank meeting, and uh, your quote in the article was, they want more information to prove that this is transmitted through blood transfusions. We plan to provide that data to them, uh, or that you're going to get that information. So we had, uh, we had a few cases that were unusually occurring, largely among elderly men, who'd had bypass surgery and had a lot of units of blood. And the blood banks slammed the doors in our face. and said, if you wanna get access to the donors, you'll have to do that. Um, but a couple of things broke that open. The thing that really broke it open were the three cases in prisons with hemophilia, who had received blood from hundreds of thousands of people. And, and they were also outside of all of the main areas. None of them had any risk factors. They were the first cases in their state for the most part. So people said this must be a bloodborne virus. At the same time, Harold was working <clears throat> with Art Amon uh, and others in, in uh, San Francisco when there, there was a case in a child who just received the blood transfusion. That's in the, in the band played on movie even. Um, it turned out it was a closeted gay man who had given blood once, who had AIDS, who died of AIDS. That opened the doors for us to get into the blood banks when they no longer could stop that from happening. They remained extremely skeptical. They had a, an NHLBI committee that was chaired by different people who slammed the door on us. They basically said, what do these infectious disease people know about blood anyway? I mean, there was a lot of very unpleasant days. And there was even one, there was one whose name I won't tell you, uh, <laughs> took our data and wrote a manuscript about it for JAMA, proving that it didn't happen. Um, so I knew, the, I knew the editor of JAMA, mm. and I told him what this fraudulent jackass did. And he was a, he's a professor at a major university. 
And then I, I called him and told him about this and told him the next one I was going to call was the dean of the medical school. Wow. So he retracted the paper. But I mean, it was a lot of, nobody wanted this to be in the blood. Right. And then the various investigators went out and investigated the cases. I think I did one, John did some, Harold did some. And we'd get there, there'd be 20 donors and there'd be one person five years earlier who was a donor who had lymphadenopathy. You know, and, and it proved not only was it transmissible, but it was transmissible from people who had no symptoms to people who would subsequently die and still remain infected. So these studies were very important about the natural history of HIV after the virus was discovered. And Paul Fiorino in our labs went back and they were able to isolate the virus from every single one of those donors five years later. Yeah. Anyway, it's maybe more than one or no. Yeah, so <laughs> as predicted, the time is flying by. Um, I think to me what was impressive from the outside looking into the CDC effort is from 1984-85, you started doing projections, and I remember those graphs, uh, green on the left and red on the right or something like that, and, and it, I was just stunned that they were almost spot on. I mean, once you got the hang of this, you guys got this, the predictive models figured out, it was incredible. Uh, what was behind that? How did you all go about that? John, were you a part of those things and, and your projections? Well, I was not involved in that part, so I, I should defer. Uh, but the exciting part to me was that blood transfusion investigation. But in terms of modeling forward, no, I'm going to defer to my colleagues on that one. Okay, so the author, the first author in the paper was a guy named Mead Morgan who's still at CDC, mm. uh, and he was a very young statistician. He, there were essentially two pieces of data. One was we knew that reporting of AIDS cases, now this is at a time when virtually everybody with AIDS was hospitalized because it was so serious, there was no treatment or no way. So uh, the report, reporting was about 95% of all cases in the country. And then we also knew from studies that Harold did uh, along with others from the hepatitis B studies when they went back and tested the natural history retrospectively and people who donated blood for hepatitis B studies in San Francisco, we had an idea of the natural history of infection up to the AIDS. And using that projection uh, and the completeness of reporting, Mead Morgan projected for the first time from 8,000 cases up to 270,000, still in the Reagan administration. We presented it at a secret meeting in this mosquito place, mosquito-born place in Virginia, with supposedly only government people, except they let one reporter in. And then we published it without getting it peer-reviewed in, in, in public health reports, without going through clearance, that all of a sudden these 8,000 cases would be 270,000. Oh, and even the Reagan administration had to start paying attention because people get sick and die. Yeah. But so mean, mean dessert, and then, then all kinds of other modelers came in and started working on this. And there's so many, many great modeling, I think, that happened that I think has, has led the way for a lot of infectious disease modeling. Now, Roy yeah. Anderson was deeply involved, and you know, all kinds of people. Harold may want to comment. Why don't you just add something on the transfusion cases? And scientifically, they were very important, but socially, they were even more important. Because when this was seen as the gay disease or the gay plague, it was easy for the public to just ignore it and say, if you're not a gay man, so what? Who cares if a few gay men die of this disease? The transfusion cases, suddenly people said, well, I could get a transfusion. My mother could get a transfusion. I remember my wife was pregnant with her first child. 
and you sign a blanket consent saying you're willing to receive blood during the delivery if it's necessary, she wouldn't sign it. Mm. And it changed the whole public perception of the disease from it was them to it's us. Yeah, that's that's big. Mm. Um, I wonder, it was your secret meeting in Virginia and Langley? Is that where it was? <laughs> no, it's <a> cool font. <laughs> you know, you mentioned, Harold, a minute ago, cool that font. it was considered the gay plague and it was mostly concentrated in hospitals and cities initially. And then you also mentioned, Jim, that when a few cases started to appear outside those epicenters it, it, you know, that were related to transfusion, that became very interesting. When did it become apparent that this was not just in the cities? You know, that what, what were the clues that made people start to recognize that some rural areas were going to, and Africa, for instance, were going to have some degree of heterosexual outbreak? The first African cases were recognized actually in Europe when people who could afford it from Central Africa flew up to Brussels, Paris, London, and were seen in clinics and were diagnosed with AIDS. And suddenly people said, well, it's, it must be occurring in Africa. And at that point, Jim and others got involved. Uh, Robin Ryder, uh, John Mann, sending teams to Africa to try to find out what was going on. Maybe Jim can describe that. Yeah, well, the first heterosexual cases in the U.S. were really the injecting drug users. But, you know, they're, they're kind of a throwaway group of people, uh, even more so in those days than they are now. And people would, they don't consider them heterosexual. They're just drug users. Yeah. Even though they were men and women, they would say, well, they're probably selling themselves to other men. And then when their spouses got it, they'd say, well, they're probably using drugs too. And you know, it was difficult, but the first, the first cases of heterosexual transmission in the world that were documented were from New York City, from Montefiore Hospital. And even though cases were occurring in Africa and cases in the United States were occurring in, in Haitian migrants yeah. who were clearly heterosexual, yeah. nobody wanted to think about that. I mean, they didn't want this to happen. Right. And, and the denial was tremendous. But Jerry Friedland and, uh, and the group at Montefiore clearly documented uh, that the cases were occurring and in injecting drug users' yep. partners. Yep, and he was in the Bronx, that's right. So um, tr we, we only have a 25 minutes left. I want to get to therapeutics and access to care. Um, Mike, before yeah, go ahead, we get John. there, yeah. I've got a, a great little anecdote to throw in here regarding, I mean, you mentioned international work, which we yes. haven't gotten to, but also heterosexual transmission. So I didn't actually work full time on HIV until 1993 when I went to work for Herald. Uh, so that was about a 10 year period, but a lot of little things came my way during that time. One of them was in 1986. Um, now this is in, uh, it, it a request that came from Uganda. So if you can turn uh, back the clock that, that far, this was right after the horrible years where Idi Amin committed yeah. genocide in that country. Museveni, who is still the president of the country, had just become president. The whole country was destroyed. We got an unsolicited um, request at CDC from an immunologist who somehow had survived this period of time, was in Kampala, Uganda, and wanted some help with looking at some of these weird cases uh, in their immunologic aspects. Somehow, I got to go. Yeah. So I went to uh, Uganda. There was uh, literally, there were no hotels. I was picked up by a British surgeon who had somehow survived the war. He took me straight away to the um, US ambassador's house. He said it was the only safe place that I could stay. 
And to make a long story short, during the time I was there, um, we discovered from the help of this British surgeon who had sent some blood samples to the UK, uh, that there were, seemed to be a lot of infections in truck drivers. And not only that, uh, in the communities, particularly women around the truck stops. So this was kind of a first glimpse in 1986 of how this virus is being transmitted heterosexually in Africa. Yeah, it's along the intercontinental highway, right. that's right. Mm -hmm. So let's, uh, Melanie, I want to turn to you. Uh, David's already told us about the VA's response and it was just kind of out front and embracing it. Um, that wasn't so much the case, at least initially um, in Atlanta with, with Emory initially. Uh, there was a, some resistance, um, and, and your group, uh, your practice, you're now out through a training, you're, you're, you're out at Piedmont Hospital, I think, if I remember correctly, mm -hmm. and you started seeing a lot of the patients in the community, and briefly describe what that felt like, the need, the, the push to get therapeutics, and what you did, and what your group did to respond. Well, you know, I, I think... <laughs> A doctor's worst nightmare is not being able to do anything for somebody and just watching this decline and, and more and more patients and, you know, rounding. It was initially at Crawford Long, which is now Emory Midtown, but, you know, the hospital was full of patients. I mean, you know, I would round on 20, 30 patients who were in various stages of dying. And, you know, you just can't do that very long without trying to do something about it. And so what happened here is that um, we, a group of us got together, Dr. Remland, Sam Thompson, and about a dozen docs in private practice, and basically said, um, we need to figure out how to do research and bring in potentially life-saving therapies. An, an interesting thing aside to that was that people were using all these alternative therapies, like AL721, which was basically egg whites that you had to refrigerate and carry around, and, and dextran sulfate, and things that had absolutely no efficacy. But this, because there was nothing else, this is what people were doing. And, and we initially thought, well, we could research these things. Well, it turns out it's pretty hard to research stuff like that when nobody would pay for the research and you don't have any uh, resources. But we eventually, the, the group of us got together, we started meeting, and we said, all right, we're going to reach out to various places where we know that there are drugs being developed. And we, people looked at us like we were just crazy, you know, a bunch of docs in Atlanta, and they want to do research and blah, blah, blah. Um, but we put together the AIDS Research Consortium of Atlanta, and our first trial was of erythropoietin, which we were using for the anemia that was caused by AZT, and then beta interferon, which didn't work, but works for other things. But we finally got into DDI and DDC. And, and so over time, we began to do studies, and we did studies, we've done studies in you know, over 40 of the drugs that have now been approved for HIV. But it was really a community effort, and you know, it was everybody coming together saying, all right, we need a research mechanism. We wanted people to stay in their own clinical settings. So if Dave was a 
patient's doctor at the VA, the patient would still see Dave at the VA, but ARCA would provide the, the data management, uh, the pharmacy, have a nurse travel out to the VA and see the patients. And, and so we just began to build a system um, and we were running 20 to 30 trials in HIV medicines at, at certain times. And you know, the remarkable thing really came around in about 1995 when we had been doing trials of protease inhibitors for really a, about a year. And you know, it turns out that people got better. And all of a sudden, people who were dying were living. And it was, it, that to me was just a truly remarkable turning point. And that's, you know, the Lazarus effect that we all saw in our practices when people really began to live. And, um, and, and so, you know, it, it was an, an interesting opportunity, but it was a very community-based opportunity. Uh, and people with HIV were involved from the very beginning in the design of everything, um, in in you know putting together the trials, in starting ARCA, um, and in working with all the community-based organizations in Atlanta. So, you know, in the absence of a structure that was actually doing things, um, we we put it together and made it happen. And so, I, I just want to recognize Melanie, and for those of you who don't know her from 35 years ago. Um, <laughs> If Tony Fauci were here, he would say that Melanie and maybe two or three other people in the country were able to set up a network of community-based physicians who were seeing dying patients and turn, in, turn them into research studies that greatly advanced very quickly uh, HIV prevention and treatment research uh, in the United States, and she's still doing it. So I'd like to give her a round of applause. Oh, yeah, great. And Donald Abrams in CPCRA. One of the things that was happening then was the the buyers club yeah and the act of they you guys were heavily engaged but you know i, I cringe when i watch the movie dallas buyers club because this what happened here and a lot was opposite they weren't trying to make money right. they were trying to help people david what do you remember about that well it certainly was an issue i mean i think we again at the va it was a little different other than the studies that we were involved with 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 melanie uh, I think our, our veterans were a little bit different in that they they had sources of care. They were able to get drugs when they were officially approved. I think the studies that we did with Melanie were really the earliest drugs before anybody academically in Atlanta was involved with any AIDS research. And I think that was a very exciting component of what was going on that Melanie was able to pull together this group of people that were interested or were willing to do studies outside of a, a pure academic kind of a center. And I think that worked out very well. Uh, we really didn't have patients that uh, I was aware of that were involved with buyers clubs. I don't know yeah, if Melody you were, had more of that. Yeah, I, we had a lot of patients who were interested in the things that they could get at the buyers clubs. And, you know, as long as they weren't causing any harm, then fine. Um, other than the cost, but, but, but people in Atlanta weren't trying to make any money out of no. that. They were saving lives, trying to save lives, and they were going to Mexico and going other places and bringing back all sorts of stuff. And, uh, it, you know, it was a reaction to the absence of treatment. And, mm. you know, I'll, I'll tell one anecdote about the community-based thing, and you mentioned Tony. So I met Tony Fauci um, in, I think it was 1988, 
early on, and uh, he called a meeting in Washington and invited about 12 of us to come to the meeting. And he basically said, um, you know, ACT UP was having actions and so on. And he basically said, what do people want? Do they want drugs or do they want research? And we can figure out either way but tell us what they want. And, and at that meeting, the Community Programs for Clinical Research on AIDS, the CPCRA, was born, which was the sort of sister program to the ACTG. Um, but what impressed me was that Tony always has listened to community. He always had his door open. Um, you know, Mark Harrington could get in the door before people at NIH who worked for him. And he, he always um, he always listened. He was always um, very finger on the pulse and always innovative and willing to try new things at a time when, uh, you know, a lot of people weren't. So you also had the Orphan Drug Act that was started with AIDS to start with pentamidine isothionate, which had never been licensed in the US and it had to be sold. <clears throat> the uh, then also uh, something called parallel track, mm -hmm. which allowed drugs to be sold before they were proven to be efficacious. And a lot of these things really began because of the pressure from clinicians and others in the, as well as ACT UP. Mm -hmm. So ACT UP was, were not the only advocates, it was the Melanie Thompsons and the David yeah. Emlins and everyone else, so IDSA. It was a combination of Byers Club, it was a combination of Martin Delaney in San Francisco right. with uh, Project Inform. There was a lot happening. Jeff, uh, thoughts? Um, you know, one of the things that's happening now as a result of COVID is we're seeing a lot of um, resistance in the schools to education about, you know, MSMs, you know, LGBTQ, et cetera. And back then, there was great resistance against teaching kids about protecting themselves as they transitioned into adulthood, uh, taking place in the schools and particularly. Do you think it would have made a difference if we had had a more, um, I don't know, thoughtful approach towards a national policy for approaching educators and parents? Or was it just doomed from the start? You think it was going to never be acceptable? Because we might have pre prevented a lot of infections if we'd started earlier, in my opinion, but I'm fairly naive in this area. Hell yes. <laughs> <laughs> but what could we have done differently? I mean, did we make any fundamental mistake early on by just saying, let's do it in the schools? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the arc of justice spins slowly. Um, you know, the home, the, the, for people who weren't around then, the amount of homophobia that existed in 1981 was much greater than it is today, mm -hmm. even though it may be swinging back that way. Mm -hmm. It was not only not gay marriage, but you got to remember there was institutional homophobia in the military mm -hmm. until Barack Obama came in. Mm -hmm. I mean, how would you like to have don't ask, don't tell for being black or don't ask, don't tell for being a woman? You know, I mean, mm -hmm. that's ridiculous. But before that, you simply could not be gay in the military, except unless you were, then mm -hmm. you couldn't tell anybody. So, um, you know, gay marriage, if there had been gay marriage 50 years ago, if all these other things had happened, it would have changed what it's like to be gay. And now, of course, there's pushback on that from the governor of Florida and other um, like-minded uh, uh, Trump would-be's. Um, but it's better than it was. 
and uh, and it could have been better then. But Harold and I know we couldn't get STD education in the schools. Mm -hmm. It took the AIDS epidemic killing people. Yeah. AIDS was the number one cause of death for men between 25 and 45 in the US for about five years before the great drugs came along. So everybody's kids were dying. A lot of people were dying and it became too important for prejudice. It's kind of like it was a tipping point. People started to say, well, maybe we should teach this. So we got age education in the schools. You know, people started coming out of the closet um, and, and civil rights got better, but it's still got a long ways to go. A corollary to that question is, I remember very clearly by the mid 80s, the importance obviously that the community was playing, but part of the community was celebrities who were using their celebrity to, you know, lobby Congress people, et cetera. And, I've, you know, that may be linked to, you know, having friends and family members affected by AIDS and HIV, but clearly celebrities right now must be having friends and family members affected by COVID, and yet we don't see that same level of of groundswell and activism on the part of the celebrities of, of our nation? Is it just not as important, is not as dramatic, or mm -hmm. has something else changed about our society? Hard to say, too philosophical, go on. I'm not sure how to address that. Let, let me make one comment about the homophobia issue, which is kind of interesting, again, reflecting the veterans uh, uh, systems in terms of permissiveness. You know, at the time, it was illegal to be either gay or drug abuser in the military. And yet, when they left the military and came to the VA with their HIV disease, there were no calls about asking whether somebody was gay or a drug abuser. We collected that data as part of our protocol. So it was, a, again, an interesting concept. And this is before it was really still a problem in the military. Once you got out of the military with the VA, they didn't care. So I think it goes back to your issue of the, the education and the homophobia and how things are reflected at different levels in terms of what's going on. We've got about, and, go ahead, Melanie. Well, just to quickly address your question, which I think is very interesting. Um, I mean, these are different times and COVID is a different disease. And, you know, COVID began, unfortunately, in an administration that politicized it so heavily that um, it, it really uh, got off in a very bad way. But there have been celebrities who have stepped up. I mean, Sean Penn is a celebrity who stepped up and created CORE, and CORE has been doing work in, in Haiti and everywhere else, not just COVID, but they provide a lot of the testing we had here in Atlanta. Uh, and so I think celebrities have done things. There have been a lot of celebrities who have stepped up and given money and, uh, and made statements. I think social media, in a way, dilutes that out because I think there have been a lot of people who have spoken up, but it's not like Rock Hudson. It's not like that one celebrity who really made everything change or Michael Jackson, you know, so to Michael Jackson, really paraphrase Randy Warhol, um, when everybody's famous for 15 minutes and it all happens to be during COVID, it dilutes out the impact that actual celebrities have. Right? I, I think that's part of it. Yeah. So I don't so think COVID have, needs it. I mean, presidents get it. You know, everybody gets it. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got about nine minutes left. I, I want to return back to therapeutics because that's really, really where the revolution happened. And I'll just give a personal perspective and have all of you react because I, I was obviously in Birmingham. Um, the epidemic hit 
later, a couple years later than it did in Atlanta. Um, so I was watching things emerge in Birmingham as I was watching Atlanta. That's when I interacted a lot with Sam Thompson. He was fighting a lot of fights um, to try to get space. And, and I think ARCA, by working with the community, was born out of some frustration that they couldn't uh, get everything they were looking for, at least at that time in Emory. And a footnote, uh, from the mid-90s onward, Emory embraced this and has become a world-class AIDS center. Uh, and so tip of the hat for that, but early years were difficult. And uh, just wanna uh, see what you guys thought about um, the, the emergence of drug discovery. You talked about it, Melanie, uh, towards the middle 90s, but how that changed and how you all watched this evolve. And Jeff, I'd like your opinion as well, because you came here roughly around that time in the early to mid 90s. Yeah. Um, I think that, in 1994, when I arrived here, we had about a thousand people at Grady who died of HIV that year. And by 1999, it had halved, you know, and we only had a few years of the triple drug therapy with indinivir, et cetera. And anybody who was a thinking person in the early 90s realized that your patients did not have a, as good a chance of survival unless they were in clinical trials, because mm -hmm. that's the only way you could get the new antiretrovirals, because the old ones worked. AZT worked for a year, but you know you had to get the next drug. And so I, when I was not practicing at a major institution and only had what was available, it was one of the worst experiences of my life, because no matter what you did, everybody died. Yeah. And that was what brought me back to academia, is I didn't want to see my patients keep dying, and I wanted them to get in clinical trials. So, so, so speaking of the trials, one of the interesting things from my perspective and, um, is in the first part of the 90s, we stumbled onto the notion of viral load mm -hmm. and working with Gene Labs and George Shaw, and, and we uh, pulled that together. And the, the drug companies were just then developing what we now would call heart therapy, or we would have called it back then. So it was like 92 um, is when it started to happen. And the Buyers Club in Atlanta, sort of like Tom Blunt and mm -hmm. Don Averett and a lot of people who we know, um, sort of stormed to Birmingham in a good way and said, how do we get people from Atlanta into these pivotal uh, studies, at least uh, phase one, two? And what left me with was a dilemma about there were hundreds, maybe 1,000, 2,000 patients from Atlanta who would drive back and forth on I-20 uh, weekly to come in for a visit. But um, we also had an obligation to our local patients as well. So we came up with working with the community to create, in essence, a um, uh, allocation model that was fair to both ends and we had everybody sign off on it but that was like 92 93 94 the first person who got in denivir in the world was a guy who was from birmingham but lived in atlanta and came back and forth um, and the fascinating story real quickly on him is that three weeks into a study his viral load in essence had plummeted cd4 count went from seven to almost a hundred but on a weekend of labor day his eyes were yellow and i thought we'd killed his liver um, it turned out it was the Gilbert's type syndrome, but we didn't know that at the time. Um, let's, maybe we can wrap up and just have everyone, we have five minutes or so, uh, give a one minute summary of, of what you look back on it and what, what was the most impressive thing that 
uh, you experienced or the thing that was most powerful? Uh, Harold, I'll start with you. Well, I'm not really a clinician anymore, but I still remember working in the clinic that Sam Thompson founded. It was actually at Hughes Spalding Hospital at the beginning. I think I started working there in 1988. Everybody died. People who didn't die looked like skeletons. Working at the clinic 10 years later was completely different. People looked healthy. They weren't on IV drips. I just think it's a miracle. Mm -hmm. yeah. I don't know how it happened, but it's a miracle. Dave? Yeah, I think the same thing happened. Uh, we had a, a cohort that we actually established in 82 with our first patient and followed every patient with HIV that we saw at the VA. And it was quite striking that we could follow mortality. And in 1995, we had a 25% mortality of everybody seen that year, which was unbelievable. Immediately in 96, it dropped dramatically and went down to the you know single digits very quickly so that really was quite striking in terms of what was happening with hiv and you know over the years uh what happened until i retired is that it became a very different disease so the people that we had working and helping in our clinic like john uh we're now seeing general internal medicine problems with their diabetes and hypertension and yeah. obesity and Aging. hiv no longer was the, the big part of it i think that really was striking John? So when I look back, uh, I mean, I had a number of wonderful years working domestically with Harold and others, uh, but uh, PEPFAR happened around 1994. Yeah. And that was the time I moved over around then to, uh, well, now I guess that came a little bit later, but to, uh, to working with PEPFAR and care and treatment. And one of the biggest myths at the time, if we can think back to about 1996, was the people in Africa won't know how to take these drugs. Yeah. They don't have watches or whatever. It turned out to be the biggest falsehood ever. Yeah. And, you, and we actually had the advantage around that time was unlike people in the United States who had cycled through all these NRTIs and developed all this drug resistance, that wasn't the case in Africa. Yeah. So we jumped right in there and now we're up to uh, something like um, uh, 19 million people in the world who are on um, ART with PEPFAR support. It's amazing. Which is way over half the total number of people on the planet yeah. who are on, uh, on ART. That's and it's still going on, even despite COVID, it's still going on. Yeah, it's, that's remarkable. Jeff, let you. Uh... I, the moment in my life that I can never forget is the Vancouver AIDS meeting when three trials of triple drug therapy were presented and there was no mortality in the blinded arm that was getting triple drug. And that was like a huge crushing, partially conscious and subconscious weight that had been on my body for 15 years, mm -hmm. suddenly just was gone, mm. you know, and we realized we could treat people and they weren't going to die. I mean, nothing could match it. Jim. Oh, I'm not a clinician, but I have one Lazarus syndrome story. I left uh, uh, CDC to go to Emory in 1995, right about the time of the Vancouver meeting, maybe a little before that. And my deputy at the time was a guy named Ron Valdeseri. Remember, Ron had a secretary, a tall, handsome young man, about 24, who was a gay man, who um, got one of these, um, uh, he sold his life insurance policy because he had a, he had pneumocystis. He sold it to buy himself a new convertible and uh 
he was having a great time with his new convertible. And he came into our staff meeting one day crying, saying that his doctor at Emory had diagnosed him with progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy and that he only had about six months to live. And he took away his driver's license, his keys. And then I left, I came, went to Emory. I was at Emory, he came back a few times in the next few months. And he went from a 6'3 or 6'4, 200 pound guy to about 140 pounds in a wheelchair. And he was there and everybody was kind of watching him. And then I lost track for a couple of years. I went to a going away party a couple of years later at this uh, condo. And uh, I heard this booming voice singing New York, New York, and sitting at a grand piano. I went up there and here was this guy. Now up to two, now I had a pot belly, 230 pounds. He bought me a beer, clanked his beer against me. And he is still now yeah. um, a lay minister at a Methodist church downtown Atlanta. That's awesome. It's awesome. Melanie. I mean, talking about the Vancouver AIDS conference, this is not my memory, but, but it is a memory because I was at the IASUSA guidelines panel meeting and we were all lined up and ACT UP San Francisco stormed the meeting. They jumped on the tables, they threw things, and they covered all of us in red liquid, it was like beet blood. Juice. It was beet juice. And the and basically they were saying you're killing people stop giving azt and this was the meeting mm -hmm. where the protease inhibitors were yeah. shown to be yeah. astounding and it was sort of like gosh you guys aren't keeping up what's going yeah. on <laughs> it, <laughs> but, yeah. but but i want to say that you know to me this this moment in time when people began to live instead of die is is indelible but <clears throat> i think it's tempered for me by the fact that that young guy that I saw at Grady on my pediatric rotation as a medical student is still over at Grady Hospital dying right now. You know, this is the population. We have all of these wonderful drugs and we can't save lives. There are still people dying in Atlanta and we're one of the worst places in the country and Georgia is the worst in the country for our rate of new HIV diagnoses. So, you know, I, we, we have made terrific progress and I just want to temper it a little by saying that we have so much more so much farther to go. And, uh, you know, we know how to prevent HIV, but we can't get the medicines into people. And, and so we have a lot of work to do. And I think that this is the next challenge for our, our, our generation. And, you know, it's, it's not over. Well, that's a good note to end on in the sense of everyone here, everyone listening in, we're all part of this together now. We have a big challenge in front of us to implement what we've learned and make it so. Uh, it's not so much learning the primary science anymore as much as it is learning how to implement what we do, which is why implementation science is so critical. Uh, we have the data that, that we know works. It's a question of making it so. Um, I'll finish by thanking everyone and for a remarkable conversation and just, you know, tip of the hat because what we've learned in COVID, two years, two years, is on the shoulders of what we learned in HIV over 40 years. There's no question about it. And all the hard work that you guys did, case definitions, finding a virus, testing, implementing, 
took five, six, seven years. We're only two years. We've already got a vaccine for goodness sakes. So we have a lot more to do in terms of uh, working on this, but just we should celebrate what we've done together and what we can still do. So thanks very much for this. Thanks for hanging around. Mm -hmm.